Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host as always, Brandon David. Awesome show today all about consultants. If you are a cannabis founder or a founder of any other company for that matter, you get hit up constantly by consultants, people that can help you with your business, with your marketing, help you raise money. So on the show today, we have Aaron Sauls of Stoic Advisory, and we're going to ask him what advi- uh, what consultants can actually do for your business. Uh, he's worked on everything from pre-seed investing to M&A and, and public market stuff, so he has a great sort of overarching perspective on this. But most importantly, we're going to find out how he can help businesses. It's an awesome show. I learned a lot. You're going to learn a lot. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Really nice to have you on the program. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for being here. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, So I took a check at the website, took a look at the website, and uh, it looks like you offer a number of consulting services. We have a lot of founders that listen to this show, a lot of people trying to start cannabis companies, and they get hit up by consultants constantly. Um, And I just wonder, you know, how can you actually help a cannabis company, a new cannabis company trying to make it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's, um, that's definitely something that's happening. In the industry, I mean, I go to I go to conferences. I was at the um, MJ BizCon conference last year, and I think you know, 20% of the people with booths were consultants. I think a lot of consultants in this sector are groups very much oriented around licensing, so promising you that they can help you get a license in any given state or any given jurisdiction. Um, I think what we do is obviously completely different and, and specialized. Um, my own background, um, I started in this industry in late 2013 with a Canadian bias, obviously. I'm from Toronto uh, at uh, one of the kind of pioneering investment banks in Canada and I'd, I'd argue you know globally that was really allocating resources to the sector I was uh, an equity research analyst at the time um, I was one of the first analysts on Bay Street that started covering public cannabis companies putting out comprehensive research of the sector helped build the investment banking franchise we took uh, several companies public over the course of that period of time uh, advised companies on M&A transactions equity financing I then went and worked at a hedge fund for about a year. I was allocating capital to the sector. And then I started this consulting firm in you know, late 2016. Consider us really kind of like a boutique investment bank. We provide um, you know, very strictly capital markets type services. So we help with capital raise type work. We help with M&A. Um, and we do a lot of kind of diligence and valuation work. So uh, we, we work on a day-to-day basis with companies that are allocating capital to the sector, including hedge funds and family offices, but also... Uh, private equity type groups that are allocating capital specifically to this sector and we also work with a lot of you know corporates and companies in this sector um I think our core expertise is on the analysis, diligence, valuation side of it, and uh, as well, you know, the capital raise and M&A side of it. So, um, so it sounds yeah, like I mean, a pretty sort of broad, sounds like you're pretty flexible. Um, what's an ideal customer look like? I mean, you know, who, who's who's really good to come in the door? Who do you really want to talk to? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a pretty full suite of clients right now. I'd say we're actually fairly bandwidth constrained. We haven't taken on a new client in some time. 
Um, and so we work with um, licensed producers in Canada. Uh, effectively, consider us your kind of outsourced corporate development team. Uh, if you need to focus on your grow, you need to focus on building your business, consider us, like I said, kind of an outsourced corporate development team. So we have clients like that that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis to help build their businesses, sourcing, vetting, structuring transactions outside of the grow is kind of the way I like to put it. And then we have more one-off type scenarios where I've had uh, startup tech companies come to me. I'll, you know, at times come in as uh, the acting CFO. Will help connect and raise capital. And really, a lot of business, a lot of entrepreneurs in the sector have phenomenal ideas of what they want to do and how they want to build a business. Um, but they need guidance in terms of how they take that to the market to raise capital. So uh, I think we're extremely helpful around building the appropriate slide deck, building a financial model, helping build the business plan even to some degree, and then introducing that company to potential capital providers and kind of guiding them through that whole process to make sure they have a good experience and they raise capital. So we do mandates like that. We do M&A um, type work. We're, we're pretty deep now in a particular transaction where we're uh, selling a company. So um, it is very broad, but I'd say um, that's, you know, covers off a lot of what, what we do. Okay. So let's say um, I live in San Francisco. I'm based in the Bay Area. So I'll, I'll take the, the tech angle. Uh, yeah, I meant I meant tech uh, cannabis. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, tech cannabis is, is probably yeah. my favorite part of the industry. Yeah. It's it's fun stuff. But anyway, okay, so I'm a startup and I've got a new app where I want to tell everybody around me that I'm about to smoke weed right now and everybody should come session right. That's just the worst example possible, but you'll get my point in a second. So I have I have this app. I have a great idea. Um, I'm really into cannabis, but I don't know shit about raising money, and I never even heard the phrase M&A before um, I come to you and you tell me what what do you, what do you say to me uh, yeah so I'll say show me your um, well, I'll say first of all give me give me your pitch because it obviously has to be a compelling pitch to me I think something that's probably unique about um, stoic and, and what I do we, we invest for the most part in mostly all of our clients so we're very much aligned from an interest standpoint um, so you have to convince me. I mean, I've probably seen over a thousand pitches and I probably invest in one out of every hundred I see. Um, so I think the first thing is probably a pitch to me. And then the next step is, okay, well, here are kind of this, you know, the checklist of things that you need to do uh, before you sit in front of a potential investor. Uh, and that includes obviously building out a comprehensive business plan, building out a slide deck, which lays out that business plan and the investment opportunity, building out a uh, functioning financial model model uh, that can be shared with a potential investor so they can flex different assumptions and understand how your business works and what kind of makes it tick um, and almost mock kind of interview or mock uh, the person to some degree to make sure they're prepared to deal with any sort of questions that might get thrown at them uh, really just kind of put together the whole package so they're prepared to get in front of an investor and I put you on retainer or you know how, how does that sort of arrangement work from the beginning we're talking about a pre-launch startup right no no cash no revenue how, how do yeah. I pay yeah I mean we're, we're pretty flexible it kind of it depends with every client I mean so going back to that tech cannabis company example that was a, an early stage uh, they were revenue generating but uh, like any startup cash is incredibly precious so 
Uh, we didn't come in asking for an aggressive monthly retainer. We asked for a very modest monthly retainer that we agreed to defer until uh, the capital was raised. So it almost works like a success-based fee. If we never, the company wasn't successful in raising capital, we would never have received that uh, retainer. And then we will always look to take some portion of uh, equity in the business. So, um, I mean, I think that's we we always try to. You know, structure any kind of compensation agreement with the client in the way that best aligns interests. Um, so yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so I, I've run into exactly that issue a couple of times. Uh, there's a lot of founders, people with companies that come to us, come to investing in cannabis and say, hey, can you help me raise money? Can you help me with my pitch, my deck? I've done a lot of this in my life as well. Met with a lot of startups, you know, can, can you help? And for the most part, we do it for free because we're nice and, and we like <laughs> to help people. Um, but to the extent that uh, I've looked into charging them. Uh, it's always been uh, seemingly to me that it's illegal to tie any payment to a funding event. Um, and I'm sure the laws differ in Canada from the United States. Um, but I've always seen that you sort of have to do it on a monthly reoccurring like consultant basis rather than a percentage of whatever's raised. But uh, I, that's a question for you. You know, have you come across that and and, you know, any any issues there? Yeah, no, you're 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 totally right. I mean, it's the same in Canada. You have to be properly licensed to raise capital and take finder's fees. I think for us, it's all oriented around having a broader kind of consulting mandate where we're helping the company, excuse me, through the whole process, like I said, in terms of putting together the slide deck, financial model, et cetera. And so we don't necessarily tie anything specifically to uh, the capital raise in terms of a finder's fee, but we will, again, have some portion of equity in the business. We will uh, ask for some sort of monthly retainer. And what I meant is we would defer that retainer. So let's say uh, we're helping and guiding a company through that whole process and providing introductions to potential investors. Um, we will just defer the cash part of the retainer until the capital is raised. Um, I see. So it's it's not a direct finder's and fee. That it's just a, and that is legal. And that is legal. Basically, it's, yeah. it's at $10,000 a month or whatever and to be paid when you rate you when you have a certain amount of funds that's that's the idea yeah exactly it's the same way um lawyers i know there's a lot of lawyers obviously that are you know very actively trying to get into the sector it's the same thing lawyers will defer kind of retainer and, and hourly fees until something happens until a funding event happens or till you know something happens and the company can actually afford it so uh we're just and you know behaving in a similar fashion doesn't that put a pretty tremendous amount of risk on your part, I mean, I'm sure you're good at what you do and you're good at evaluating opportunities, but uh, you may have situations where, you know, they don't raise or they never get to that funding point. I mean, how do you sort of grasp that? You know, how do you grapple with that within your own business? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's a balance. Like with you, you know, the kind of ecosystem of clients that we currently have range dramatically. I mean, we have, like I said, early startup S type companies that we're trying to assist and get get involved with. Um, and then we work with fairly mature businesses um, as well. And sort of, I mean, I got this advice from a few mentors of mine when I started this business. And you know, it's kind of cheesy, but it's you know, find. You know enough mature clients that can afford to pay you monthly retainers that quote unquote keep the lights on that is you can pay yourself and kind of an employee um, 
and then everything else is kind of gravy. So that's kind of the way we look at it, and that's the way I've structured my business. It's let's find some mature clients that we love working with and that can afford, you know, to pay us uh, a monthly retainer, mm-hmm. and then um, you know everything else are kind of upside. So even you know M and A type work that we do, which is all success fee based on a transaction actually happening, um, we can only afford to pursue that opportunity because we've been fortunate to build a pretty uh, decent um, uh, host of kind of you know clients. Uh, already i see so more established clients keep the bills paid while you sort of wait out the payments of deferred uh situations is that so basically what, what i'm hearing that a few a couple of your clients maybe you know half pay for the rest or you know what's what's kind of the the breakdown there? yeah pay for the rest sounds negative but um um it's just it's just trying to find um a nice mix of clients like you know you want to for me i think one of the more challenging things with my business is trying to manage conflicts uh of interest just because specifically in canada there's a limited set of companies that you can work with um and this is such a small sector still today and everyone kind of knows each other and i think it's the same for the us from my experiences as well mm-hmm. so it's all about trying to manage conflicts and find the right mix of clients that are on different ends of the spectrum so they're not really competing with each other mm-hmm. and it's not again it's not any you know it's not mature clients paying for others it's just trying to get that right balance in your own business of mature clients and more you know immature kind of junior startup type clients um, it gives me kind of as, a, as, as an entrepreneur myself, um, it, it makes things more interesting for me, obviously, right? I mean, we're, yep. we're working with some, some big companies and then I, I love working as well with kind of more junior startup type companies. Yeah, got it. And will you ever accept just straight equity as opposed to some deferred cash? Yep. Yeah, we've done that. Got it. And then what, what's the structure of that look like? I mean, how, are you an advisor at that point or, you know, how, how are those, uh, how does that agreement come together? Yeah. I mean, I think it, again, it's kind of, it just, it differs so, um, widely. I mean, uh, typically I haven't taken any sort of, you know, formal, uh, board of advisor, board of directors type roles, because again, I think it just probably throws me into a situation where I'm potentially conflicted at the end of the day. Um, we are not, necessarily fiduciaries of of our clients we are you know outside third-party consultants uh, which is the same for for any consultant so um and then the second i you know take a, a board of director a board of advisor type role then that kind of complicates that so typically uh, we come on in a pretty straightforward manner we come on as a third-party consultant slash advisor to the business in whatever capacity you need us and in, and in some cases it's companies uh that are kind of lost from a capital market standpoint and want guidance they want to know you know what are the investment banks we should use who, what are the different institutional types of investors we should be talking to hey we want to raise capital what structure do you think the market would like best should we raise through convertible debt should we raise equity etc there's other companies that come to us on one-off projects we had a significant mortgage fund based out of toronto come to us and say hey we're looking to lend 25 million dollars to a grow up in california can you do a diligence slash fairness type opinion Mm. on the business basically saying are we ever going to get our money out of it so we'll do one-off type type you know mandates like that as well interesting interesting yeah um and that's kind of a short-term project that obviously is cash-based yeah that's kind of a nice nice side project too so give me a sense for the size of the business today you know how many clients or revenue or however you kind of think about that you know the size yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not going to share revenue or anything like that, but um, uh, we've got uh, five uh, licensed producer. I mean, I would kind of separate into three different tiers. So we have five licensed producer type clients, which range in, in, in size. Um, licensed producers are the only kind of legal uh, cannabis producers in, in Canada. Uh, and then we have uh, more investment type groups. We're working with three different investment type groups, uh, two of which touch the U.S. Uh, and then on the sort of ancillary side, uh, we work and have worked with uh, two or three different type um, ancillary type businesses uh, as well. So I guess if you added it all up, I mean, we have probably... And at, at, at any given time, probably five to seven kind of active clients, two or three of which are day-to-day oriented work, and some of which are more special type uh, projects. And then, you know, there's always kind of other things on the side that are uh, happening. Got it. Yeah, that kind of leads into my next question. I mean, that's not too many clients, but where do you find the time for you or your team to sort of give as much as you can to each one of them? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, this business is, has existed for about uh, a year now. And so I'm kind of learning myself uh, the answer to that question. But I think for me, when I, when I, I was in a really fortunate position when I uh, left the job at, at the fund to start this, where there was some demand for people to work with me. And so uh, it's kind of like being the popular kid in school. And, and you know, everyone wants to be your friend and you just keep saying yes to everyone. Um, so I, I definitely had a problem early on saying yes, probably to too many opportunities and certainly overwhelmed myself at the time. It was just me running the whole show. Uh, I've since hired someone full time. So there's, there's two of us now. Um, but I think it's, um, it's definitely learning how to say no and not saying yes to everything that comes your way. So being selective, which I've, I've certainly learned. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's really trying. I mean, I think probably the answer is, you know, hiring. I mean, I found a really incredible guy that's working alongside me and our skill sets are perfectly comp complimentary from the standpoint of you know, I probably spend 70 to 90 percent of my time on the phone talking to clients mm-hmm. uh, managing the relationships from that standpoint and he spends 70 to 90 you know 80 percent of his time uh, doing a lot of the desktop type work so it's obviously finding a, a phenomenal partner that can work alongside you and and uh, managing the amount of clients you have <laughs> interesting yeah that's uh sounds crucial there's only two of you you better work well together right that, that makes sense for sure um let's talk yes, a little bit about canada sure. um we we've had a lot of canadian both investors and entrepreneurs on this show in the past but you know kind of if you could give just a couple like high level or, or differences that people may not know between the US and Canada, you know, I mean, in terms of raising money or, you know, whatever you see or, or whatever you think is, is the biggest differences. There. Yeah, sorry, you're, you're cutting out a little bit, but I think I got most of your question. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the two very clear differences between the market is in Canada, we have a transparent federal legal medical framework and moving very shortly by July of next year into a national federally run uh, per, uh, uh, legal adult use framework that's properly banked um, and, and taxed. And obviously what that would differ incredibly in the US where federally it's still illegal cannabis and it's everything's happening on a state by state level. So, and it's not properly banked. So those are the glaring, you know, glaringly obvious differences between the two markets. The capital markets are completely, completely different. I think from my experiences in the, in the US when you're trying to raise capital, it's largely high net worth, family offices, um, 
private equity groups that are uh, their only focus is in the cannabis sector. I think from a supply and demand standpoint, there's definitely uh, an imbalance where there's a lot of demand for capital, not a lot of supply. I think a lot of that has to do with my earlier point of, of it being federally illegal still. Mm-hmm. Um, the capital markets in Canada are completely different. I mean, they're, they're far more open here. We have companies that are listed on uh, the major exchange. Um, just in the past, you know, 12 months, there's been close to $2 billion probably raised uh, on the uh, stock exchanges alone uh, mm-hmm. for public cannabis companies here. Um, the institutional investors in Canada across the country are participating in the sector. Um, so, yeah, totally. No, the capital dra- markets are totally different. Dr- drastic, drastic differences. Doesn't that lend itself, um, and and I'm sure you do, but doesn't it lend itself to you wanting to work in Canada like, almost exclusively? You know, d- does it make sense to come to the U.S.? Is it just seems so much harder from yeah, your, from I mean, your standpoint? For sure. I mean, we. I mean, I'd say eighty percent of our business is probably focused on Canada, and twenty percent is probably on on the U.S. Now, I think. Um, for sure. I mean, I think the openness of the capital markets here definitely lends itself to our business model where we're actively working um, with companies that are all oriented around the capital markets. So uh, for sure, that's why our focus has definitely been in Canada. But I think when you look at what's happening in the U.S., um, there's there's a lot of opportunity there because every state is so unique uh, in Canada. You know, you can become an expert in Canada and that's becoming increasingly competitive from the standpoint of um, you know, there's a lot of capital markets providers. Um, there's a lot of companies competing for capital. Uh, in the U.S., everything seems to be happening on a state-by-state level, and I think that makes things more interesting as you know, entrepreneurs, and even for myself, where I can become a specialist in a particular state, or I can focus my efforts maybe just on the East Coast and on those states instead mm-hmm. of the West Coast, or I can just focus my my efforts solely on California. So. Um, I think that's what makes the U.S. interesting to me is the state-by-state differences. Um, but for sure, I mean, the openness of the capital markets in Canada has given birth to my career, so um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also a networking effect, right? It's it's where you live. It's where you were based. So it makes sense that, that you've gotten a lot of business there. Um, just going back to the U.S. for a second here, I, how much does the – Obviously, it, it's still federally illegal. How much does that influence your desire to take money from uh, American cannabis companies? You know, I mean, are, are you ever worried that you'll be implicated in something for being a consultant in what's a federally illegal business? Um, to some degree, for sure. I mean, I think we've been very careful. Um, we haven't really run into anything like that just yet. I mean, like I said, we're... We are very selective, and this this comes down to not saying yes to, uh, to everything that comes your way. I mean, we're incredibly selective in terms of who we work with, and uh, obviously, when it comes to the U.S., we're even more selective for that you know reason. So, um, you know, I think when you look at what's happening from a regulatory and political standpoint in the U.S., it seems clear to me that the government's going to res- going to respect the the states decisions in terms of how they're um, uh, operating. So I think my comfort level obviously is fairly high that, you know, I can work with businesses in the U.S., you know, without fear of prosecution. Um, But my risk tolerance is obviously a lot higher than, you know, your average individual because I've been, you know, an active participant in this sector for, for years now. 
Yeah, uh, really interesting that you bring up risk tolerance. What's the risk tolerance like for investors out there today? I mean, are they still looking at this as a, a gray market? And obviously, U.S. differs from Canada here. But you know, how has the conversation changed with the institutions? I suppose. Yeah, and I think I mean I think there's a direct correlation between risk tolerance um, and cost of capital. Uh, to some degree, I mean, right now the risk tolerance, you, the risk tolerance of of Canadian investors in this sector is fairly high. I mean, everyone feels quite comfortable um, with the federal framework here. Investing in licensed producers, I mean, uh, most Canadian retail investors in Canada, for the most part, have probably purchased or or at one point purchased a cannabis stock. So the risk tolerance for that, I, I guess, is is fairly high, and as a result. The cost of capital has been fairly low. I mean, there's companies raising capital here at valuations that they may not necessarily deserve, but for the investors, it makes a lot of sense because you're getting access to a very unique opportunity. Um, where did, whereas you go down to the U.S., where the risk tolerance is not the same. I mean, everyone, from an institutional standpoint, uh, most funds aren't getting this past their compliance divisions. They aren't able to invest. In many cases, I've spoken to fund managers that their fund can't invest, but personally, yep. uh, they're doing they it. will yep. because you know mm-hmm. the fund won't. So, um, But as a result, the cost of capital, from what I found in the US, is tremendously higher uh, because it's just not there yet. So yeah, quantify um, that I think a little it definitely bit. differs. How much more expensive is, is raising money in the US than in Canada? In, in whatever way you can. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to quantify, but I guess if you think about it this way, um, you know, we're seeing businesses here, not to get really technical, but we're seeing businesses here that are capable of raising capital at trailing revenue multiples of 40 to 50 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, a typical sector probably trades at a trailing revenue multiple of, you know, three to five times. Mm-hmm. If it's a high growth sector, maybe five to 10 times. Yep. So that kind of, I guess, quantifies the cost of capital difference. Mm-hmm. In uh, the U.S., you're getting discounted growth multiples because um, that kind of, it's that that federal and, and regulatory legal risk gets priced in. Um, and, that, and the only way you can price it in is is uh, to invest at a lower valuation. So, yep. um, and that gets kind of forced upon these U.S. companies, which frankly, which is why so many U.S. companies, and I probably get inbounds almost weekly, so many U.S. cannabis companies have either looked at or have considered coming north uh, to list on exchanges here and raise capital here because they see the valuations here mm-hmm. and uh, they understand that the cost of capital will be a lot lower. But there's a lot of challenges with, with doing that. So Sure. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, I mean, short of federal legalization in the U.S., is there anything else do you think that helps those big institutions de-risk these these opportunities um i think if they start seeing i mean and we've started to see this where um executives and gray hair type of uh, executives from pharmaceutical cpg alcohol big tobacco some of those executives have started to come into the sector i think that's been pretty big and in in a lot of cases from my experiences i've seen some some companies in the U.S. private that have been incredibly successful at raising capital, not necessarily because they have a phenomenal business, but because the executives that are running that business are ex-big pharma, ex-big tobacco, ex-big alcohol, and that gives family office and large institutionals type investors comfort. 
Um, so I think that's a big piece, and that's starting to happen more. And the more that happens, I think the more comfort investors will have. I think something else is, you know, there's a lot of talk of, oh, big pharma is going to come in and buy these businesses or big tobacco. I think if we see a legitimate acquisition from, from big pharma or big tobacco or a legitimate, you know, side, um, uh, investment from a group like that, I think that would help legitimize it as well in the eyes of institutional investors. So I think the, that's the, those are big pieces that we're yeah. still kind of, you know, great answer. On. I ask that question all the time. That was a great answer for sure. Um, cool. So I want to go back to my first question of the interview, which was, you know, what can you do for startups? And, and you have a number of services and you did a really good job of articulating them. But I wonder if there's just one example um, that you want to mention that, you know, shows your value, you know, or uh, an exit you're really happy with or, you know, something that's ongoing. I know it's only we're only a year in. But, you know, uh, you have a good example like that? Sorry, you kind of cut out. Can you repeat the question? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I have a quote here uh, that you would only invest in or you would only work with businesses that you would invest in. That's pretty powerful. Um, so I wonder if there is an example uh, that you're particularly proud of. You know, uh, I know it's only been a year. You're only a year in, but you know. yeah, no, this is I've I've got a perfect example. <laughs> so, um, so about a year and a half ago, I started working with a company called Tokyo Smoke. Yep, um, they've been on the show. And so been on, I'm been still the, the show, acting yeah. CFO of that business. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, probably the one I'm most proud of. I mean, that business, we raised capital at a very low valuation. I mean, I came into that when there was three employees. Uh, the valuation was sub $5 million at the time. Uh, the the idea for the business was still pretty novel in the market to uh, investors. And uh, I basically worked hand in hand with the founder to build the slide deck, build the financial model, build the pitch, uh, help price the deal because he was going out at a number at the time that I felt, you know, the market wasn't going to be able to bear just by, you know, and that's really kind of an art form more than a science, just me having my finger on the pulse and kind of understanding appetite and, and where sentiment's at. Mm -hmm. So we, we priced it appropriately, we structured it appropriately, all of which I kind of guided him through to some degree. And then we really hit the pavement together, me kind of as at, uh, acting as, as his acting CFO for about eight months to raise capital. And so we went out, we probably had 300 plus meetings and calls. We ended up raising three million. We, we went out trying to raise two, we raised three. Uh, that closed late 2016. Uh, the company grew from three employees uh, to close to 20 now. We've bought a business. We have two other M&A deals in the pipeline today. And we're just closing on uh, an upsize round of seven, of close to seven million dollars, with the idea of raising five, and the valuation has gone up about five times. Well, congratulations! That's an excellent example. Uh, and Alan of Tokyo has been on the show uh, not too long ago. Yeah, there you go, Alan. Yeah, about, about a month <laughs> yeah. ago or so. So, yeah, um, yeah. awesome story there. And I, you know, the reason I asked that question is there's a lot of people listening to this show that are looking for help. So that's about as good of endorsement as you can do. I want to switch gears just a, just a little bit here. Um, I love to connect sort of the daily important work that you do with just you know what kind of cannabis consumer you are. You know, uh, at night or on the weekends. What are you reaching for? What, what do you enjoy? You know, what, what kind of consumer are you? 
Yeah, you know what? When I was in university, I was a pretty habitual smoker, and I was typically smoking flour out of a bong. And frankly, I had absolutely no clue what the flour was that I was, you know, <laughs> consuming.、Um, my habits changed once I graduated. I just didn't have the opportunity to smoke the same way that I, I used to. I'd say now, very much so. And I think as a you know, product of being so involved in this industry, I'm I'm biased much more towards kind of the vape pen and. I'm probably a one to two week smoker, you know,、yep. once once or twice a week, and typically oriented around the weekends. And for me, it's kind of late at night、um, to relax,、uh, relieve kind of stress and anxiety, and、mm-hmm. usually just have a few pulls on,、uh, you know, a hybrid kind of vape pen. I'm, I've definitely moved away from the high THC products, and you know,、Got、tried、it. enough edibles to not be, you know, a huge fan of of, of edibles myself. So yeah, I'm like kind of a weekend. You know, I'm not 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 terribly exciting. I'm not heating up the dab rig every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that makes sense. And I think that's the case、uh, with many many people in this industry, U.S. and and Canada、uh, together.、Um, it does bring up an interesting question, and this will be my last one. I'll get you out of here on this. But、uh, what's the motivation? I mean, is cannabis just that good of a business opportunity that you want to be in it? If you don't. You know, it's you know, it's like if you had a glass of wine a week. That's basically what you're talking about. You know, the, your 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 level of usage. Why cannabis? You know, what what what's the motivation? Yeah, I mean, so that's a going down the rabbit hole a bit, but、um, for me,、um, there's a lot of different reasons. But I think I definitely saw the anecdotal. I mean, from. From a medical cannabis standpoint, I'm like everyone else in this industry. There's anecdotal evidence, just from my own experiences, that have motivated me to be a passionate advocate of the product for sure,、um, just in my personal life. And、um, but really, before that, and this probably isn't you know a super sexy answer, but at the time, you know, I was 22 years old or 23. I was just promoted to an analyst at an investment bank, and I started covering pharmaceutical companies. And so I was the 15th or 20th person covering Valiant or some big pharmaceutical company. And when you're 23 and you're the 15th or 20th person covering a pharmaceutical company, and you go to、uh, an institutional investor and say, "Hey, listen to me,"、uh, the door pretty much gets shut on your face、yeah. because I was competing against, you know, 20-year kind of vets of, you know, analysts that are covering pharma companies.、Um, the cannabis sector came around. I put my hand up because a, I was a consumer. I was personally interested from anecdotal evidence. I believed in medical cannabis. I was passionate about that.、Um, And I was basically the first person to cover cannabis companies. So I was the first guy to cover, for the most part,、uh, public cannabis companies, and、um, which kind of made me the guy to some degree. And I think、um, what really attracted me to this sector was having the opportunity to participate and play a role in a sector. Where there wasn't going to be anyone with gray hair that was going to come、mm. and tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, buddy, you know, take a chill pill and take a step back, and you know, let kind of the adults handle this." I mean, this this is a sector where no one can say that to you. So,、um, for well, that's me, an that's, awesome answer. That's an yeah, awesome that's, answer. And I think the lesson there is there is a ton of opportunity in the cannabis industry right now.、Um, so look around and grab it and reach out. Uh, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron.、It、sounds like、uh, yeah, your clients you. are very happy.、It、sounds like you're going to grow a lot.、Um, yeah, it's been been great having you on. I know you're fighting a little bit of cold, so I appreciate you、uh, you coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome, guys. Well, thanks for listening, and、uh, we'll see you next time.